Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. One of the virtues that we always like to encourage at Grace is generosity, but generosity does sometimes create problems. One of the big problems with generosity is keeping track of all the gifts. You get so much, sometimes it's hard to remember everything that, that you've gotten. I'll give you an example of this. It's October now. In a few weeks' time, it'll be Halloween. Kids will be coming home with pillowcases full of candy. At a certain point, that uh, generosity will be poured out on the floor, and a process of sorting and cataloging will take place. And once that happens, parents, your opportunity will be in an end. But before that candy is cataloged, you know that there is a window of opportunity in which you can help yourself to the riches there, and, and children will never know what's been taken. Now, obviously, you can't go in and take uh, the greatest prize. Uh, our neighbors were giving out one year giant extra-sized Snicker bars, uh, which really you know, made them the most popular house in the neighborhood. And uh, you can't take the giant Snicker bar because the child knows that's in the bag. But anything that's small, there's multiples, that stuff, free reign. Free reign. It'll never be missed. And I think there's a sense in which the same thing is true for us. God has been so generous to us that we are like children with pillowcases full of good things. And, and, it, and it's hard to keep track of it all. We remember the big stuff. Salvation by grace? Absolutely. Hard to lose sight of that gift. As we're going through the book of Acts, Another gift that maybe we don't think about as much, we're, we're reminded of the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. But even beneath that, there are other gifts. There are gifts that we uh, don't remember are meant to be gifts. Gifts we don't see as gifts because there's just so much to keep track of. And the church is one of those things. As we look at the first two chapters of the book of Acts, we're specifically looking at the, the connection between the kingdom of God and the visible church. The kingdom of God and the church. And this focus reminds us necessarily that one of the gifts that God has given us is the church. One of the good things in the bag is the church. More specifically, as we'll see in our passage this morning, one of the gifts he has given us is the officers of the church, officers of the king, whose kingdom is the church. So we're in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, we're picking up the story in verse 12. We've already seen uh, what Jesus taught during the days that he was with the disciples. We've seen his ascension. And now we have one episode left to narrate in chapter 1 before we get to the famous events at Pentecost in chapter 2. So this is Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, 
They went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know who the hearts of all who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Here's a question for you. This book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, Why is the first act of the apostles to choose a new apostle? Why start there? Now, the text that we've just read, you could divide it up into three sections. There's basically three parts to what's taking place. There's preparation in verses 12 through 14. Then there's Peter's proposal, and that's in uh, verses 15 through 23, most of the passage. And then finally, there's the choice of Matthias in verses 24 through 26. And each of those is important. First, there's a period of preparation. After Jesus' ascension, the apostles gather in this upper room. They gather with the women, with Mary, with the brothers of Jesus. There's a group of people who are centered in this upper room. And we're told that they are of all, of one accord, and they are in prayer. Back in August, we uh, had a sermon called Remain Human If Possible where we looked at the life of of Mary, the sister of Martha. And one of the things I said then was, if you look at Martha and Mary, you consider Mary's example, it really exemplifies the idea of being still and knowing. She is still before Jesus, and then she knows what to do. She's still before Jesus, and then she knows how to glorify him. Here, the same pattern is being worked out. After the ascension, Jesus' apostles and the people in that inner circle, they are being still. They are being still. They are going to God in unity 
and in prayer, and they're waiting. They are waiting, and out of that time of preparation comes knowledge. And the knowledge that comes is interesting. The knowledge that comes comes through the mouth of Peter, and it's the knowledge that the first thing we need to do is fill this vacant office. So Peter arises, speaks, and he makes this proposal that they should replace Judas, his empty, vacant office. They should fill that office with another man. When Peter speaks, there's, there's two parts to this speech. Most of it has to do with Judas. And most of what he's saying is putting the betrayal of Judas in a certain context. And he says, essentially, that what Judas did was part of the plan. That what Judas did had to be done to fulfill what had been written in Scripture. And not just any Scripture, but he actually quotes the Psalms. He quotes the Psalms of King David. So in speaking about this officer of King Jesus who betrayed his Lord, Peter goes back to King David, to Psalms that he wrote, Psalms specifically about his own betrayers, his own enemies, those who sought his life. And he finds in the words of King David directions from King Jesus about what to do in this case of betrayal. And this idea is not one that Peter is going to let go of, this idea that that what Judas did was prophesied, that what Judas did somehow in a deep way was part of what had been foreordained. In Acts chapter 2, in his sermon on Pentecost, in verse 23, Peter will insist that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So he is giving them an assurance that this betrayal that they witnessed did not take God by surprise, did not throw his plan off the rails, that there was something about it that was necessary. He quotes two Psalms of David. The first one is Psalm 69, verse 25. And here I think the connection is is pretty obvious. The details about Judas that that Luke relates parenthetically. If you look in your text, you'll see that after Peter introduces the subject of Judas, Luke adds a parenthetical explanation. He's writing to an audience that may not be familiar with some of these events, so he's explaining to Theophilus who this Judas guy was. And so he gives some information specifically about the field that was purchased and the really gruesome death of Judas that resulted in that field not being occupied. So there was a place, but that place has been left vacant. There is, in the words of King David, no one to dwell in it. So Peter sees that connection in the fate of Judas in the words of David. But then he sees another connection. This is from Psalm 109, verse 8. Let another take his office. Let another take his office, take his place. And this is the psalm that leads to a transition where he's spoken about Judas, but now he sees direction that the office that Judas left vacant should be occupied. A new apostle should replace him. And there are qualifications for this apostle because as an apostle, the, the, the undertaking that he's making is to be a witness to the resurrection, to 
bear witness to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He will be one of the 12. So Peter says it ought to be someone who is a disciple and longstanding, someone who's been with us since the days of the baptism of John, someone who's been here all along, who's seen all of these things as we have so that he can bear witness. Two candidates are chosen from the group, from the possible range. Uh, The first guy has a bunch of different names given to him, and each of these relates to how he would have been known in in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in in, uh, Latin, like in his Roman name as well. And, And the implication of this is he's the man of more stature, You know, he's got a a higher reputation. Matthias is probably of a humbler reputation, and yet it's Matthias whom God's choice falls to. And and we should be clear that it is the choice of Christ that is being acknowledged here. They draw lots, which probably means um, like colored stones are drawn from a bag, so that the choice that's made is not an election. It's not that the people are voting on who gets to be the new apostle, Ultimately, this is seen as Christ choosing the candidate. Christ will choose this man to occupy the office through the means of casting lots. Now, why is this incident significant? Why is this important? Let me tell you why it's not significant. So it's not significant because Matthias goes on to be the super apostle and he needs an origin story. Like, everybody's wondering, man, where did this Matthias guy come from? He's amazing. He is the foremost of the apostles. How did he even get to be an apostle? And Luke says, well, let me explain. It was kind of interesting. No. In fact, this is the last time Matthias will be mentioned in the New Testament. So first mention and last mention of Matthias. The reason this story is told is not so that we know how this great man first entered onto the stage. Rather, like I said earlier, this act is the first act of the acts of the apostles. This is the very first thing that Luke records in this book that isn't repeated from his gospel. But as we saw earlier, in the first 11 verses, he's recounting things, Jesus' teaching and the ascension, that he already alluded to in his gospel. This is the first thing that happens in the book of Acts that is new the first action that is taken, and I think that says something. Here's an interesting question. If you're going to replace one of the apostles, if you're going to fill that vacancy and it's important that Christ choose the man, why do it after the ascension? Jesus was with them for 40 days. It would have been easy to say, Lord, you know the hearts of all choose who should be this new apostle. But that's not how it happens. This is the first thing they do after the ascension, not before. That suggests that they see this process that is described as being equivalent. Matthias is chosen by Christ in this way as certainly as he would have been if Christ prior to the ascension had put a hand on his shoulder and said, Matthias, it's time for you to fill this vacant office. So there's a certainty to this. But I think the fact that they wait suggests that this is the way things are meant to proceed, that these are the people who are meant to discern 
these needs and who are meant to guide this process that leads to their fulfillment. The apostles are meant to lead in the kingdom. They are meant to lead in the church. And the fact that this act of filling the vacancy is the first thing that Luke records points to the significance of the church's apostolic foundation. Why are these officers of the king a gift to the church? Specifically, if the church is a gift in general, why specifically are these officers of the king a gift? To understand that, you have to think about the importance of the apostles as a foundation. As a foundation. Already in Acts chapter 1, we've seen there's, a, there's an emphasis on the apostles themselves. In verses 2 and 3, We read, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So it's the apostles specifically that he's teaching during that 40-day period. It's the apostles. He presented himself alive to them, to the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, to the apostles, during 40 days. And then when they're gathered, they're named. The 11 apostles are named. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. By name, the apostles are gathered. And then by name, brought to their full complement when Matthias is added. There's a reason why it was important that there be 12 because 12 would be the foundation. Just as there were 12 tribes, there would be 12 apostles to lay a foundation for the church. When Paul writes about the church, he stresses this idea that it is the apostles who form the foundation. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's in Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. A foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. The prophets of old, The apostles of the New Testament have laid a foundation on which Jesus Christ is building his body, the church, building us as bricks, one by one, on a foundation that consists of these apostles. John, in the book of Revelation, sees the same thing when he describes the heavenly city, New Jerusalem. He says, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them, were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It is the apostles that the church is built upon. They are the foundation. This is why it's so important that their their preeminence be acknowledged and that this vacancy be filled. It's interesting, this second quote from the Psalms, let another take his office, The word office there in the Greek is episkopane, which may sound familiar to you, right? It's where we get uh, the English word episcopal. In the King James, this word is translated bishopric, quite literally, let another take his bishopric. Uh, If you know a little bit about 
New Testament history, you know that the words episkopos and presbyteros are used synonymously in the Gospels. So episkopos is a word that we would translate as bishop, and presbyteros as presbyter. It literally means old man, but presbyter or elder. And elders and bishops were the same thing. They occupied the same office so that Peter, who is clearly preeminent even among the apostles, not just among all the elders in 1 Peter 5, refers to himself as a fellow elder. He is a fellow elder. So what you see from this is that this idea of apostleship is being treated as an office of the church. Now, admittedly, in the New Testament, this language is used in a looser way than it's used later on. Uh, Later on in church history, uh, once episcopacy develops, you'll have bishops, and a bishop is a very different thing from an elder. But in the beginning, it wasn't that way. In the beginning, there was this commonality. So apostleship is seen by the apostles as an office that a man holds. And interestingly, not a perpetual one. So their expectation is not that, oh yeah, there's going to be apostles forever. As long as there's a church, there's going to be new apostles cropping up. Right? Instead, there's a, a sense of qualification. It's important that the apostle who replaces Judas meet a certain qualification because of the special role he will occupy for the church. Remember, too, that when Paul is called as an apostle. People don't just accept at face value that, of course, there would be a 13th apostle. There's going to be lots of apostles from now on. No, he has to argue for the legitimacy of his apostleship to the Gentiles because of the fact that this office is not seen that way, that it is something special, unique, limited in that sense. There's something unique about the office of apostleship the same way that there's something unique about the apostolic age, the times in which the apostles lived. These times were different from what went before and also from what would come. You consider what was happening in this period. It was during the era of the apostles that the foundation was being laid. I don't know if you know much about building, but, but foundation work is something you start and then finish before you can keep going. If you live in your house, but you're still working on the foundation, that's not a good thing. The foundation really needs to be set before you build on top of it, and that's true for the church as well. During the apostolic era, the foundation is laid. No further foundation is needed. But what is there with Jesus Christ as cornerstone? So it's during that era the foundation is laid. What sort of foundation is it? Well, it's during the apostolic era that the Spirit, working through the apostles, and in some cases through their uh, mentees, through their followers, inscripturates the revelation of God. But it's during the apostolic era that the canon of Scripture is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And after that era, the canon is closed. There's something special about the office, something special about the era, the gifts of the Spirit, the the sign gifts of the Spirit during the apostolic age prior to the giving of Scripture were used as a way to validate the message of the apostles. And after that era, that changes. So we see there is something unique about this era and about this office. And yet, there's also some continuity 
Right? There's some things that we can learn because it's during the apostolic era that the offices of elder and deacon emerge. It is the apostles who tell us what the work of elders and the work of deacons looks like and what the qualifications for office are. We learn those things in this foundational period. And although we do not now have apostles with us, we have the word to guide us and we have the spirit and we have the gift of officers, of elders, of deacons to minister to us. And this is a gift. The process differs somewhat, just as the office does, but the effect is the same. Christ, through the means of his people, choosing officers to serve him in his kingdom and to serve his people. So what is the purpose of this gift? If the church is a gift that we should be grateful for, if even the officers of the church or a gift that we should be grateful for. Well, what is the purpose of the gift? Sometimes it helps to know what things are for so that you can appreciate them. So what's the purpose? The kingdom, the church, its officers or gifts, the first act of the apostles shows the priority that they place on this gift, this gift of leaders. But we've been spoiled by so many gifts that it's easy to forget, and it's easy not to appreciate what we've been given. I think the way we talk about the church, the way we talk about its officers, oftentimes suggests that we don't see the church as much of a gift. Whenever you hear people denigrating the church as an institution, what they're doing essentially is separating the gospel from the kingdom. I love Jesus. I love the gospel. I hate the church. You can't separate these things. The gospel and the kingdom go together. Our anti-authoritarianism makes it difficult for us to appreciate the idea of authority at all. And if you tell me that the God of love set up some sort of hierarchical institution to exercise authority over me, well, by my definition, it doesn't seem like he could be a God of love because that's not what a God of love would do. And yet here we see Jesus establishing the church, like his body established, and and giving it officers, giving it chosen leaders to guide it, working through those leaders to guide it. This is indeed love. Sometimes love operates through structure. Sometimes love operates through discipline. Christ founded the church. Christ appointed its officers. He ordained its structures, and it is good. Now, when I say that it's good, you should be thinking, okay, wait a second, but, but, but isn't this whole sermon necessitated by the fact that Judas was an officer in this church? And that's anything but good? Yeah. And so even here, there's a lesson, which is that we can distinguish between a bad officer and a good office. A bad officer and a good office. The office is good, unfortunately, Oftentimes, we are plagued by bad officers. And bad government has a tendency to bring all government into disrepute. But we shouldn't allow ourselves to be blinded to the fact that what Christ established is good. And the fact that there are bad officers does not mean that the office itself 
is bad. Don't blame the office for the man. As you see from the example of Judas, God has a way of dealing with bad officers. So what is the gift for? Scripture doesn't just tell us that this is a gift. It tells us the purpose of the gift, what it is here for. That's also in Ephesians. We looked at Ephesians 2 a moment ago. In Ephesians 4, you find the purpose of it all. Paul writes, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the purpose of the gift of the church, the purpose of its officers given to us is to equip us for the work. It is to build us up so that we can reach the goals of unity and knowledge. Of unity and knowledge so that we can be of one mind, so that we can understand better Christ who has called us. In other words, so we can attain maturity. We live in a culture that values youth and not maturity. And when we look for wisdom, we look for it in the mouths of children. It's difficult for us then to prize maturity coming in times when we're doing everything we can to to look less mature than we really are. And yet we're called to maturity. We're called to greater understanding, not to wide-eyed innocence, not to a lack of nuance and understanding. We're not going to be patted on the shoulder because we're naive about the complexities of the world. No, we're meant to grow up to maturity, to grow up in wisdom, in knowledge, and still, to speak the truth in love. And to do that difficult task, we need help. We need guidance. We need the church. We need its officers because this is how God guides us into maturity over time. It's how he guards us from the deceit that is all around us. This is why he gives us this gift. And if we don't value the gift, it's probably because we don't value the goal because we don't value the maturity in Christ that we've been called to. I look at what Peter does in this moment, pastorally. I think Peter is giving a gift to his listeners in this moment. There's a gift that Peter is giving through his words. If you think about that moment... These people, the intimates of Jesus, are gathered in this upper room together. They're of one accord, we're told. They're gathered together in prayer and meditation. They are waiting. And as they feel that togetherness, there's also an absence that they can't help but feel because one of them isn't there. We look back in hindsight, and we look at Judas as a guy who probably never really was an apostle in reality. 
Right? We look back with the knowledge of what he will do, and we don't see him as one of them. Whenever he's mentioned in the Gospels, there's always an asterisk by his name in our minds. Oh, no, don't take that guy seriously. He's going to betray Jesus. That's not how they saw Judas. He was one of them. He had a share in their ministry. He was a brother alongside them, and that brother betrayed their Lord. And if you think they didn't feel that, then you don't know what it's like to be betrayed. They felt it. They felt it. And Peter speaks to that. He speaks to it. I know you've been betrayed. Jesus has gone. Jesus has ascended. Here we are together in this upper room. And you think about Judas and how Judas turned his back, how Judas betrayed all of us. And what you need to know is something that's hard to hear. That even that, even that was part of what God is doing. Even that horrible thing, that pain, that open wound that you feel every time you think of what happened, that man's actions and his fate, even that scarring thing was part of this deeper plan. He draws them into a deeper maturity by showing them something that I'm guessing they wouldn't want to see otherwise. That even this betrayal was necessary, was prophesied. That it was one of the hard things ordained by God. He shows them that. But he also shows them this, that for every bad leader, For every evil officer, God will rise up a good one, a replacement. There will be justice. God will give good gifts. He will raise up officers to lead us, to protect us, to guide us. That is a gift. But there's a greater gift even than that in his words, and it's the gift that's seen in the prayer As the two candidates stand before the congregation, the prayer that they offer to Christ, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, you choose, you decide, you make your will known. The most important gift that the officers of the church, that the people of God can give, the most important thing is to point to the king. Officers of the king, above all else, must point to the King. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.